0: The draft notice arrived on June 17th, 1968. It was a humid afternoon, I remember, cloud and very quiet, and I'd just come in from a round of golf. My mother and father were having lunch out in the kitchen. I remember opening up the letter, scanning the first few lines, feeling the blood go thick behind my eyes. I remember the sound in my head. It wasn't thinking, just a silent howl. A million things all at once. I was too good for this war. Too smart, too compassionate, too everything. It couldn't happen. I was above it. I had the world dicked Phi Beta Kappa and Summa Cum Laude, and president of the student body and a full ride scholarship for graduate studies at Harvard. A mistake, maybe, a fool up in the paperwork. I was no soldier. I hated Boy Scouts. I hated camping. I hated dirt and tents and mosquitoes. The sight of blood made me queasy. And I couldn't tolerate authority, and I didn't know a rifle from a slingshot. I was liberal, for Christ's sake. If they needed fresh bodies, why not draft some back-to-the-stone-age hawk? Or some dumb jingo in his hard hat and bomb Hanoi button? Or one of LBJ's pretty daughters? Or Westmoreland's whole handsome family? Nephews and nieces and his baby grandson? There should be a few, I thought. If you support a war, if you think it's worth the price, that's fine. But you have to put your own precious fluids on the line. You have to head for the front and hook up with an infantry unit and help spill the blood. And you have to bring along your wife or your kids or your lover. A law, I thought. It should be a law. I remember the rage in my stomach. Later it burned down to a smoldering self-pity and then to numbness. At dinner that night, my father asked what my plans were. Nothing, I said. Wait. So that was an excerpt from uh, Tim O'Brien's 1990 collection of short stories called The Things They Carried. Uh, Tim O'Brien is a novelist, a journalist, but he actually ended up fighting in Vietnam as, as a drafted soldier. But this particular short story, um, it's called On the Rainy River, and it really talks about his experience of uh, receiving a draft card in the mail and going through all the stages of struggle of should he go and fight in Vietnam or not. And in the story, and this is a a true story, he actually ends up trying to flee to Canada. And he kind of comes to terms with the fact that he's too scared and he can't fight this war and all these like crises that he's having. And he gets in a car and he starts driving and he stays a couple of days at a motel on the border between the United States and Canada with an old guy who's kind of becomes a mentor to him. Almost. He doesn't judge him. He doesn't ask him any questions. He just takes him fishing. And as they're fishing on the on this river, on the border of the U.S. and Canada, the old guy takes the boat up to the border. And he's like, hey, if you want to go, you can go. And Tim O'Brien, at that point, is like, I can't do it. And they turn the boat around, and he gets back in his car, and he drives back, and then he's deployed to Vietnam. And this story kind of falls in contrast to a lot of the other short stories in the book, which detail the absolute like horrifying nature of what... Uh, These young men had to go through in Vietnam, Uh, just the senseless violence, the sheer like brutality and this constant question of like why we are here. And I kind of wanted to uh, start our uh, conversation off with an expert, an excerpt from this, because I think it really highlights some of my feelings and thoughts I've had as I've watched the news roll out in Russia this past week of uh, mobilization announced. And it kind of really opens up, I think, questions that men and to a certain extent, women all over the world face when there's this notion of greater civic duty, of if your country calls you up to go fight in a war that you don't agree with, what's the right call there?
1: Well, let's get straight into it. If you were in Russia right now, how would you feel? I think I'd be freaking out. Okay. <laughs> I, think, I think that's
0: the, the gist of it. But then, you know, I would love to say that I'd be decisive in any decision but I think it's it's impossible to make a decision to that extent. I think there's a lot of like uh factors coming into play, right? There's like the desire to preserve yourself and I think this war is in Ukraine has proven to be, you know, exceptionally brutal. So it's like, you know, do I want to put my body on like Tim O'Brien calls it like committing your fluids to the front, right? I mean, no, like I don't want to go and die <laughs> for for Something that that I inherently disagree with. Um, You know, but then there's the shame, right? The sense of, like, other people are going to go. You know, even if there are a huge percentage of Russians who disagree with it, there are still people who, when they get called up, they're going to go and serve. Because not necessarily due to a belief in the war, but maybe it's a level of cultural understanding or maybe a sense of, yeah, duty
1: that you have a
0: a certain allegiance to, to
1: your community. But
0: I think it's also...
1: Like you know, should should blind allegiance to a community be respected? I don't know, it, and because if you if you really disagree with the premise of the war, what like what are you sacrificing? Why are you sacrificing that if you don't even believe in the cause? Right. It, it, to to me, like, why should that be respected?
0: Right, and and maybe uh, the other side of the coin, why should It'd be called cowardice if you choose to stick to your morals and leave, right? There's, there's plenty of Russian okay, men who no can, cross the Can we the maybe
1: bring up an evolutionary explanation? <laughs> Hit them you with know, it. If you, it, it. It's almost like this tendency... Again, this is totally armchair <laughs> evolutionary psychology. <laughs> but we could maybe, in theory, say this tendency to criticize people that were not going to join the tribe to go fight mm-hmm. as cowards... Would be a sort of a motivational um, kind of behavior right. right like you would do it to motivate your fellow tribe members who were who were not going to help your tribe and and the and the tribes or the groups where that tendency was more common tended to fare better because they had more support
0: right and I think that is like a huge, to, to your point, that's a huge motivating factor, even for Tim O'Brien's reasoning that he talks about why he did end up going to fight in Vietnam. It's because he couldn't deal with the, the rejection mm-hmm. that he, that he would face if he did not go, if he got it's, called it's up. It's
1: the social pressure. It's not a rational decision, right? It's you succumbing to your emotions, which are kind of held hostage the social pressures right
0: so i think simultaneously speaking it is an act of courage to to reject that and and to deal with the consequences and i think that if you don't a don't believe in the war that's being fought and b you also don't believe in you know taking human life for the arbitrary goals of a state i mean it is an act of courage i think to stick to those morals and deal with the consequences that it faces be it you know stringent jail time Or complete, like, rejection from your community when the war is over. And I think there is a sense of that. Um, You know, in World War I, for instance, in Britain, there was... There were a lot of people who, as conscientious objectors, didn't go and fight in the front. But after the war was over, they were basically seen a, as, as cowards right and objectively speaking i don't think they were cowards they just saw the war for what it was you know an absolute senseless meat grind
1: but, but but it's so uh, i mean isn't it so ingrained in us that even if rationally you and i would say yeah okay, yeah those were those people were not cowards mm-hmm. you know you could even say they were intelligent right? right you still get kind of a sense of like if you put them up against someone who did go you're like okay that person's more of a man, right, and that guy's a pussy because he right. didn't go, even though rationally you can 't really justify it. It, it and maybe that goes to show how how biologically rooted this phenomenon is and I
0: mean it's also kind of att- attaching masculinity to to an unquestioning like loyalty to to whatever powers that may be, which Kind of falls in contrast, to, I think, what a lot of like the the self help masculinity of today deals with, where you have to be an individual, you have to be like a standing apart from the collective consciousness and thinking. But at the same time, I'm curious to see if we had a mass mobilization here in the United States, what the you know the elements <laughs> yeah. of like you know Ben Shapiro or whoever the hell listens to him,
1: how they would. You think react Ben to... Shapiro would go fight? Fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> He'd be the first one on a plane. God, to, could you imagine like Canada. him on a front line, just yeah. like this is this is not the right way to do it
0: like this grenade launcher is not (laughs) (laughs) that's good you've been working on it. oh yeah every night
1: i practice it dude yeah well Um, welcome to radius of reason uh, episode 13 the cursed episode i'm levon and i'm andre yeah so quite an intro thank you thank you from andre why why Uh, did i pronounce my name like that andre I don't
0: know. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um yeah, so like 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 I mentioned, this episode is largely inspired by the events of this past week. Uh the war in Ukraine has not been going great for Russia, whose invasion kind of got flipped on its head and Now, it seems like a a very successful Ukrainian counteroffensive in in eastern Ukraine has pushed Russia into a corner and they announced a um, they call it a partial mobilization this week, which ostensibly they're saying they're going to try to mobilize 300,000 soldiers out of the reserves. But it's very obviously not just that they're kind of pulling everybody off the street. There's stories of some of the protesters that were uh, demonstrating against this decision uh, getting handed draft notices, right? Like, you know, when they get detained by the police. So this is clearly going beyond the bounds of just, Oh yeah, if you're a reservist. And I I think it's kind of important to emphasize that calling up reserves is a pretty common thing for all countries to do in times of war Um, in the United States during the war on terror. um, When, A lot of our kind of uh, enlisted personnel were being overextended in Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, they were having to extend tours of duty beyond six or nine months. The U.S. started pulling in uh, people who maybe recently completed their contracts but had obligations to get called back, you know, if need be. So, I mean, this is a, a, a common phenomena. But I think this notion of the mobilization of society, which indeed is what's actually happening in russia this isn't just the reserves going in this is becoming a a situation where up to you know 1.2 million people could ostensibly be pulled in um and a lot of uh, men and their families are, are, are fleeing the country, right? You have stories of mm-hmm. airline tickets being sold out. You know, the borders with Georgia are, you know, full of cars trying to cross over. So it really kind of hits on this point we're discussing of what is the ethical, what is the moral thing to do in a situation where
1: the country of, in which you are a citizen calls you up to, uh, to fight. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a matter of like... Yeah. You know, again, it really depends on the, the purpose of the war and what's trying, you know, what what is trying to be achieved, right? Um, if it is a existential question, right, a matter of self-preservation, you could say, you know, you're a coward and it's unethical to not support your group of people, right? Right. Um, but in this case, it is an offensive war, and I think that completely... Flips it on its head. Yeah, a it, bit. it really does. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know, Putin wouldn't characterize this as a offensive war. He like, said, "Okay, like you know, we're trying to take back, you know, part near Crimea."
0: And well, well they're saying they're, they're at war with the West now, and that. Well, yeah, makes it's escalated it, to something beyond. Right. Wh- yeah. Which in, in the narrative they're trying to spin, it's like, yeah, this is an existential struggle, and we are, you know, yes, we invaded, but we are the we are the victim in this situation to a certain extent, right? which, you know, whatever you can dissect that to any point. How, how
1: compelling is that narrative in Russia? You know, I, I think there's
0: like obviously different levels of, of understanding of that. You know, there, there is very legitimate grievances as we've discussed, you know, one of, one of our earlier episodes when the U- war in Ukraine started uh, about the nature of NATO and how NATO has expanded in Europe. But I think all of that kind of went out the window when the invasion actually happened. But there's obviously like circles in, in like Ru- the Russian political thinking that have always supported this invasion, and they do see this invasion as a sort of existential struggle and they've been actually criticizing Putin for not doing enough and when mm. the mobilization was announced, they almost celebrated this um and it was, but most people didn't <laughs> right because for most people, I think objectively speaking they see what's happening on the front lines they see that there's no clear objective there's no clear uh, strategy to any of this. It's just people being thrown into, into chaos to a certain extent. And nobody really wants to be introduced into the meat grinder. I think especially if, (laughs) I mean, meat grinder is essentially what it is, right? Right. Yeah. And if you have a a life, if you have a job, you know, if you have all the trappings of what everybody's used to kind of experiencing in the West, right? You know, you have your loans, you have your car, you might have kids, uh, You don't really want to leave that to go fight in something that you never really support. From
1: from a broader standpoint, is this war, and especially with this mobilization in Russia, is that a great example of how modern-day comfort is almost an (laughs) impediment to war and to, like, really rallying the troops, right? Because... People are much more comfortable these days, right? If if you're talking about a war during the medieval period, or even you know during World War One or World War Two, where maybe things weren't necessarily great from an economic standpoint, but now we have, you know, the, the things have been elevated, right, in terms of our base level needs and comforts on average. And yeah. so, what does that do to? The, um, the ability to, of leaders to kind of promote a war to get the numbers that they need.
0: And I think a red thread we've had throughout our, our show is this notion of what has technology and mass access to, to information really done to kind of our social structures. And I think to your point, this notion of civic duty is kind of warped and maybe not really as important today as it has been in the past where, you know, we're, we're so, <laughs> so we're going to end up wrapping this episode up with like, yeah, we need to like end consumerism so that like we can get back to like the masculine war fighting. But I, I think this notion of civic duty and, and civic responsibility even in something as simple as like voting in in a local election as we talked about in our previous episode it has kind of um lost maybe its meaning in our like information age in the era of youtube and tiktok and all this stuff Um, or maybe it's just such in the west right
1: but and and speaking of the technology um and, and the fact that everything goes viral these days seeing the images, you know, in real time and the developments and the deaths and everything like what, what, what does that also do to, to morale? Right. Right. You're seeing what's happening to your comrades. Sure. (laughs) You know, I mean, you don't, again, like you, you're seeing the meat grinder in action. Yeah. Kind of like a POV perspective. Right. (laughs) Right. Uh, Um. So, I mean, again, like it's, it's a different world. But
0: I think there's also a difference to, to your original point um, between y- Ukraine is also fully mobilized. I mean, they mobilized like in the first couple of weeks of the war because, I mean, they were invaded. They had to protect their territorial integrity. And yeah, there are people like trying to flee the country. But at the
1: same time, you do have like... IT workers yeah, but, going to to fight. And- yeah. And, and but, but this clearly illustrates the difference between like what that purpose of war does. Right. right. So for, for Ukraine, it is kind of the self preservation. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that really people get that, right. You get that when your tribe is under attack. Absolutely. And when your entire existence is at stake versus let's go take some territory, mm-hmm. let's go, you know, Show off how big our dick is, <laughs> which is essentially what Putin is doing, uh, well, and he's failing miserably. But he's mobilizing to to lift his dick up.
0: <laughs> he needs Viagra. This uh, is yeah, yeah. He needs to <laughs> issue a blood sacrifice to get hard again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I don't know. Uh, you you asked me earlier what my behavior would be in this situation. And I want to know what what you would do. What I would do. I. I think I'd probably not go. I, I think it, it's smart, man. I mean, there's definitely like a part of me. That's like, you know, this, this notion of like, yeah, you know, duty. And like, if your country, call, but no, like this, this all is, the YouTube comments are going to be like pussy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one guy is just, <laughs> you don't fucking need dating apps. You just went outside. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, we love you. Please, please, please watch our show. Listen to our podcast. I I, th- I don't yeah I, I think it's it's such a hard decision to make and this is the thing man like anytime you think about military service you always have those motherfuckers who are just like all gung-ho they're all about you know seal team six you know doing the push-ups like mm-hmm. getting ready for d- and then like when push comes to shove they don't fucking go. Because, I mean, war is objectively terrible. And I think anybody who... Especially if you have something to lose. Right. And everybody's got something to lose at this point. But to your point, like, like, you know, we all fucking have PlayStation 3s. How are we going to, (laughs) like, play video games, you know, out in the front lines? And I do think there's a stigma with that, you know? I think it is kind of hard to say that, yeah, I would not... I I wouldn't go. And, And we've had this conversation in this country... Because I think like the 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 legacy of Vietnam has it's still like a shadow over everybody. Because that was very much a time in American history where they would fucking issue draft calls on live TV, and you would be expected to show up and to go and fight in Vietnam. Which objectively, I think, is a very great reference point to the current war in Ukraine, where there was no reason for the U.S. to be in there, and it was an absolute senseless war, and yet they're still throwing generation after generation of men into, into, into combat. And there's always this conversation that I think happens in this country. It's like, well, you know, if I was me,
1: I'd be different, you know, I'd be brave and I would go, but yeah, I don't know. What's, what's fascinating. Speaking of that is uh, the fact that someone like Trump who, who kind of dodged the draft was, is still viewed by people in the military. uh, as Yeah as still some, some sort of like a hero, right? Dude, he, it's almost like he's, he's immune to to what, to the YouTube comments that you would be getting, you know, for a fucking coward. <laughs> yeah, there was, a, uh, there was a great
0: moment in, in one of the Republican primary debates. I think this may have been for 2012. It was an interaction between Newt Gingrich and Ron Paul. And the moderator asked, newt gingrich why he didn't serve in vietnam and newt gingrich was just like oh you know like it just didn't work out you know i had a wife and i and i and, and you know we had a kid on the way and ron paul was just like so did i <laughs> but i fucking went and newt gingrich is just like well, you know kind of does his like uh republican of a certain age like <laughs> you know <laughs> um but there's also i think there's also like there's something else to be said about this call for, for mobilization. And this is something I think that Tim O'Brien really, really writes. Well, it's this notion that yeah, you go because of social pressures and maybe you're not even making this the decision. The decision has been made for you. You're just kind of like shuttling your body through the process. But there's also a thought process of like, if you don't go, somebody else is going to go right. If you're, dr- let's say your draft number gets called up and you choose to go to Canada somebody else is going to go in your place. And the question I'm going to pose to you is, could you deal with the, maybe the the existential pressure of like, yeah, if you're not going to be sent to the meat grinder, that somebody else is going to get sent to the meat grinder. So in effect, you're kind of responsible for somebody else's fate to a certain extent by not stepping up when yours is called.
1: Yeah. I mean, there could definitely be feelings of guilt, you know, that come about as a result. But again, I would say it comes back to, the question of like why you're going to war I mean this is this is the question right um, and, and and if someone is going to go to war uh, for a completely unjust or unreasonable reason um, then you know so be it I, I don't know I don't know if I would care too much right like if, if the US wanted to go to war now with China for some I don't know over Taiwan for some economic reasons you know and there was a draft yeah I I wouldn't go I'd be like this is stupid no I think maybe the
0: only moral thing they could be do is let's say if there's a draft and you choose not to go I think at that point you have to do everything in your power to make sure that the war ends you know, get involved right. in like anti-war. I don't right. know. So right.
1: you have other responsibilities, maybe political activism, yeah. something of that nature. I, th- I think passivity is no longer an option at that point. Right. Because if people
0: around you are being called up to die and you choose not to go, that means you have to dedicate yourself to ensuring that people are no longer dying or getting called up. Um, Yeah. I, I, it, it's such like a, I think, especially on like a gendered aspect, granted, you know, some countries have uh, women and in, 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 front lines um you know israel uh the syrian kurds like they have women fighting Mm -hmm. on frontline positions but i think it's such like a it's it's almost like tied into to to masculinity to a certain extent because to your point about the tribal nature of things there is almost like a long history of expectation that our gender has to be the one that goes and Mm -hmm. and dies for all of this. So you almost start introducing elements of like criticisms to your own gender, but by behaving one way or another, even if you're not internalizing, you know, my masculinity is associated by my capacity to die for my country. It's still kind of part of your programming
1: because. Oh, absolutely. No, I mean, I can speak to that, you know, with what's going on in Armenia uh and where we are also, you know, facing an existential threat in Azerbaijan and Turkey mm-hmm. right and given the history and, and then given recent events um, and in Armenia like military service is mandatory mm-hmm. it's like two years when you become an adult and then you're kind of registered and you can get called up um, now obviously like I moved to the U.S. when I was young I didn't have to go through that but it feels weird even though I didn't you know most of my life I've been here. Mm -hmm. It still feels weird to like, I don't know. You feel like you're almost betraying your country in a sense when they're being, you know, they're being attacked and you're kind of just here. Right. And you can't help, Well, you could help. You could fly down there and help. Right. Like you could, And, and Armenians do do that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, there's other ways to help as well. You can send money, Mm -hmm. you can do whatever activism, but yeah, as, as a, as a man, right. Like there's definitely that feeling like shit, like we're getting attacked. I'm not there. Like there's a feeling of like reduced masculinity. (laughs) There is, there really is. Right. Um, But
0: it's, I mean, it's also, where does that come from that? The expectation is us for, for for our gender to carry the burden of not just dying, but I mean, there's the other side of the coin of killing
1: on on behalf of something, and that's something that, well, that's fascinating, right? Because the person that you're killing again could be someone who doesn't believe exactly in the purpose of of the war from their side, um, and I mean, there's those stories, right, in, in World War two where you know on Christmas, that's like, World War One <laughs> or World War One, yeah. whatever. Yeah. They play, yeah, the Christmas yeah. truce and in, in, in
0: the Western Front, and, and, and that's some of the most horrifying stories you hear, you know, from the likes of Eric Maria Remarque, uh, who is probably like one of the greatest anti-war novels He fought on the German side during mm-hmm. World War I. but it's his realization. I think he like it's on All Quiet in the Western Front, where he, he's kind of caught in a in no man's land with like a dying French officer, and he realizes like, holy shit, and, like him and I have nothing. Like between us, that would make me want to kill him. We're just both in the same circumstance because his side sent him. And
1: uh, yeah, and and that's really fundamentally what war is, right? It's a tribalism that occurs, um, and it's you know the the moment that there is an outgroup that you can dehumanize. Yeah. I mean, by its nature, an outgroup is dehumanized, but during times of war. It's heavily dehumanized sure. to allow for the atrocities that we've seen, to allow for the killing. But, you know, that situation you spoke of, once you get to know someone, you start to build empathy for them and, you, and, and then they become more human. And the moment that they become more human is the moment that these tribal lines are blurred and it's the moment that you start to care and you start to see... That, yeah, there's actually no reason no for reason. us to be killing each other. And this is the same thing with, you know, like, a Republican who's against, like, you know, gay marriage. And then, like, they know someone or their son is gay. And then all of a sudden, they empathize. The Dick Cheney experience. Yeah, they yeah. can empathize. And it's this is a reoccurring pattern. And it should tell people something, right? That empathy is kind of this solution to tribalism. Uh, or it can be on an individual level. Right? And, and I think a great
0: uh, point of reference to that, to, to what you were talking about with the Christmas truce, both governments, like German, Germany and Britain, both freaked the fuck out when that happened. Because all of a sudden, like the fighting men found out they had far more in common with one another than they did with the people who were actually sending them off to die. And very quickly there was like a stop put to them in the command level where like you were not allowed to think to like fraternize with well, the enemy.
1: Well, and this is the astonishing thing. When you look at world history and all the wars that are fought, it's, it's also usually fought between people that are the most similar, right? I mean, you, you think about, I mean, I can Turkey and Armenia, mm-hmm. like, okay. Uh, the Romans, mm-hmm. right. The Greeks, it's all the infighting that occurs between people that literally look identical, might even speak the same language, right. Or are very similar apart from their religion. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, all throughout history, you see this and it, it becomes on one level, all the more perplexing, but all the more understood all the more, um, it it gives all the more credence to like what the the effects of tribalism, Mm -hmm. like what tribalism does in terms of dehumanization Mm -hmm. and how powerful it is. And this is like, you know, we've talked about the difference between Trump and Biden, like, but like, I think that's one of the big things with Trump is that he has increased. Of course, he's not the only one. There's the media. And I'm not saying people on the left are, you know, um, uh, they don't have any, uh, uh, they're not free of, uh, of guilt here, but um or sin, or whatever, whatever word I'm looking for there, but Trump has done everything in his power. Like his his, his entire goal has been to like create a more tribal atmosphere, hmm. to create an in-group out-group mentality, to exacerbate. You could say the existing trends, but to me that's what makes him incredibly dangerous, and um, and again like war is a great example of why tribalism is dangerous because of the things that it allows one human to do to another. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, this is, this is why, I mean, you could say tribalism is one of the most dangerous phenomena and maybe the most dangerous phenomena. And the thing that we should be trying to minimize most, not just as a nation, but as a global society, right? Because we have global challenges, and as so long as there there is a tribal mentality, and it becomes a uh, zero sum game between the tribes, then there will continue to be dehumanization. There will ca- there will continue to be these unnecessary conflicts. There's already things to, to be conflicted about, but tribalism adds another layer, and it adds a, a layer that can result in like physical altercations, right? And that's that's really like kind of the unique force of tribalism, the unique consequence of it. Yeah, except now it's
0: like physical altercations
1: with advanced artillery. <laughs> yeah,
0: and it's. I think there is also a pretty interesting kind of call out to that, which a lot of like the socialist movements in across Europe and the world during world war one, were trying to tap into where it's like, no, we are being like artificially divided. We actually have more in common with one another as members of a class. And our um, leadership is driving us to this war. And we're essentially like committing, uh, class violence against one another because we're, we're killing each other instead of paying attention to the people that are actually making our lives difficult at home and that of course you know resulted in things like uh eugene Debs, who was the candidate um 1912 for president from the u.s socialist party he was jailed for for probably the extent of world war one for um openly talking about these things and calling on people not to answer the call and not to join um and that actually ultimately led to his like health breaking while he was in prison and he died after visiting uh, Woodrow Wilson when he got out. But I, I think that's like a, that also speaks to a lot of um sentiment coming out of Russia right now, where there is this question of like, fine, okay, we're going, but what's going to happen to the kids of the elite? What's going to happen to the kids of? Um, You know, the deputies in the Duma who are actively speaking up in favor of mobilization. And there's actually this really interesting um, sort of moment that came up where one of the opposition affiliated YouTube channels. I mean, they're all they they left Russia at the start of the war, basically, when they started cracking down on the media. Um, But they found the phone numbers for the children of some of the uh, leaders in the country. And they called them and they pretended to be from the draft board and like, Hey, wow. like, you know, they called the son of the prime minister, but the most impactful one, they called the, uh, the son of uh, Dmitry Peskov the, the speaker, the, mm-hmm. like the um, press secretary for Vladimir Putin. And they called him like, Hey, this is like so-and-so from the draft board draft board. Uh, are you going to show up tomorrow? And the son is like, um, no, <laughs> and he just like, says no he's like oh, i need to go like talk to somebody about this like i don't i don't know if this is like the right thing and you know yeah and like i think at the end it got a little i don't guys, know like, if like, this is the right thing <laughs> he basically he basically like dropped right. like do you know who i am you know like this this isn't this isn't for <laughs> he, me he, there was a there was a sound of him unzipping yes <laughs> yeah uh but but it's kind of yeah like the the, the children of um the children of the elite seldom go and fight on the front lines. And there are exceptions to that, right. That you, you have, um, stories of, of throughout, you know, all global conflicts. There's always like some leaders or so, some, Alexander the great man. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that was like, <laughs> he was like fucking unhinged, dude. Was, uh, Genghis Khan. But there is yeah. like, is there going to be like, if there was a law in place that if you declare mobilization, like your kid has to go first, like, are you going to be thinking about that twice?
1: Well, you know, and, and and it would be interesting to add, like, say, the U.S. Constitution had, um, had the, had a principle where, if you're going to declare a war, everyone in Congress and the president and like everyone who is kind of promoting the war has to have at least one family member like be on the front line. Or somehow heavily involved in the physical, existentially risky activities that are a part of war, right? You have to put a cost. You have to put a direct cost on the people that are starting the wars because this is, again, another pattern that we see in history, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have leaders declaring war that might just be serving their own interests, Right, and not necessarily the interests of the populations that they govern or lead. I mean, the war in Iraq. Right, being being a great. I mean, there's example. so many examples. We don't even have to give any examples, right? So, if you were to create a system of governance or a society where that was a a requirement of war, could that be the antidote to war? I think, yeah. I mean, but it's also
0: I suppose we have to come to the conclusion that war is inevitable, that it's just an expression of our, you know, our nature and violence is always going to exist. But I think, yeah, if you put enough parameters around it, you would make it as painful as possible for the people that are actually making the decision. And maybe there are instances when war is unavoidable, right? Where... For whatever reason, your country's interests align to the fact there has to be war. But yeah, if you're going to declare it, you have to send yeah. your. your and, and,
1: and in those instances where it is unavoidable, and you know, it, it's it, let's say it's a matter of self-preservation, no one cares if the politician sending anyone at that point. Like you know, the the, the tribe kind of knows what it needs to do. Yeah, it's not. It, it doesn't care if the politician sends its son. Um, but you know i mean you see like Z- zelensky staying in ukraine right mm-hmm. what that does to morale so right. there, there is something to be said about that from like a um a strategic standpoint yeah. right i and think and a mobilization so. standpoint right of encouraging further you know activity yeah but i, but I know there there
0: is also kind of um I think even in Ukraine, there, there, there have been stories of like the children of the wealthy just staying abroad. And a lot of them did come back to fight. You know, there's definitely a lot of like positive cases. But in both in Ukraine and in Russia and everywhere, you know, I think there is always um, a certain type of people that uh, do the dying. Right. And Tim O'Brien kind of talked about like, oh, he was he had a full ride to Harvard. Like, why was he getting called up? And sort of like a gasman of like me, like, no, I have other places to be. I have other things to do. And I think in the U S we've largely avoided a lot of these conversations since Vietnam, because we do have a largely professional fighting force. But even then, like there was, um,
1: a pretty fucked up, um, can I, can I, can I ask you this though? Yeah. Um, do you want the, people that are going to Harvard to go fight in the war. Yes. If they could maybe contribute in a, in a different way. Because <laughs> I'm just saying like you know, I'm not saying go fight physically. I mean they could be a part of the war, but could someone in that position with that skill set be put to better use? Yeah, but we know that 95% of Harvard is bullshit anyways, you know. Harvard Okay, maybe not necessarily Harvard, but people yeah, let's say people with different skill sets right and, and you know I, and think, more I think privileged positions i think we do need to
0: clarify yeah. that you know largely mobilization doesn't necessarily mean you're throwing 1.2 million people onto the front lines and mm-hmm. I, I think right a lot of the mobilization in russia yeah okay you're gonna have people on the front lines too but the biggest issue they've had during the war is having enough staff to manage like logistics internally to manage you know if they're occupying a bunch of territory in ukraine you have to have people behind the scenes like mm-hmm. Making things work, and I think that's being like a big challenge, so mobilization j- doesn't mean you're hundred percent like and and and, and
1: that's where someone you know if someone has intellectual gifts, yeah, like maybe you want them to be one of the strategizers sure right? and, and, and you know
0: th- they help with logistics there's or whatever, plenty of yeah. people who got drafted in Vietnam who you know. And logistics mm-hmm. and stuff like that but you know there is st- i i think it should be an equal spectrum of, of possibility right just because you are at harvard does not mean that you're going to be sitting in a cush office somewhere drinking scotch and like you know making sure. decisions i i think that um the interesting thing is though it, what i was going to say is that and you may have seen this when you were at college but right now On campus there's a lot of like signs hanging up for hey scholarship opportunity like go talk to your recruiter you know (laughs) or like uh you know student loan forgiveness by joining the united states marine corps and it's kind of the advertising is very much geared towards people who are in financial hardship and objectively speaking yeah like enlisting and, and you know serving out a contract it has improved the prospects for a lot of people but there is again there's like a class element to it where there is a certain type of American that doesn't have to go and fight. Um, And I guess we are those kinds of Americans because we're not enlisted, but it is sort of like, it's largely speaking. It's always going to be people of a certain economic class. They're going to be doing the dying, even if you do have like a professional fighting
1: force. Well, and in Russia, are, are, are we not seeing minorities That's yeah. That's like an entirely like more like fascinating detail,
0: and I think it has a lot to do also with the fact that some of these minority republics, ethnic republics, their economic outlooks are a little bit more difficult. Like Tatarstan is is doing pretty well, but you know, Buryatia is located on the border with Mongolia. They don't really have like a major economic output. So for a lot of Young men, you know, your best prospects are indeed joining the military. And that's exactly what's been happening. Um, You know, high rates of casualties in, in, you know, some of like the the Buddhist uh, nationalities uh, uh, within the Russian Federation, which there is like a a really insane clip of a Buddhist blessing ceremony in eastern Ukraine. Like they had some of um, the units from that part of Russia... Like, they just did, like a, a, like, a ritual prayer. But it was so interesting to see that happening with, like, whatever, like, a Western European, like, landscape would be. And you have a, um, like, like, an ancient Buddhist tradition being unfolded there. Which, again, like, it speaks volumes to all the civiliz- civiliz- uh, civilizational lines that are being crossed. But, yeah, I mean, to your point, a lot of these ethnic minorities are, are doing uh,
1: the fighting and dying, too. And uh, that's that's kind of fucked up, of course. Of course. Uh, that's extra fucked up when well, you're not part of the tribe. <laughs> you're asked to do the bidding of the tribe. Well, I mean, it, it's one right? big tribe, right? It, it's sort of a, yeah. it's, it's a federation. It depends on what you mean by tribe. Yeah. For sure. All right. Um, I guess any outstanding thoughts, any questions, anything we should address here? Um, have we covered everything?
0: If China invades Taiwan tomorrow and the u.s enters into war with taiwan uh china (laughs) taiwan we fight taiwan that's likely going to be a situation where i imagine there would be a draft
1: and your call comes (laughs) what's your move you know uh first i would analyze the um (laughs) you record a podcast episode about it no, I mean it it would be again like it really depends on the exact nuances of the war, right? Like if if you can make a case that this is for the um like whoever wins is going to be the superpower uh for the foreseeable future, like it's kind of like like the battle for 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 position 1 um which it would be I guess in a sense. And oh, yeah. what 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 would that mean for what would that mean for the trajectory of global society and cooperation and the things that are prioritized, right? Like if you can say, if, if the U S wins, well, you know, we're going to prioritize the, the environment and climate change to, to, to make sure like that's not an issue. We're going to make sure we have proper regulations on AI and all these other existential risks. If you can say the U S is going to do a better job, um, possibly handling these existential risks. I could see someone making a philosophical argument for, okay, you might not necessarily agree with like the war kind of, if you view it in isolation, in a vacuum, right? And the merits of it in, in that sense. But in terms of its impact on the long run uh, of human civilization, um, you could make a case for for actually taking part in that war. But why should somebody from rural Oklahoma
0: be concerned with those kinds of things? And why should we ask somebody from rural Oklahoma
1: to go and die for something like that? Well, I mean, I'm saying you can make a, you know, a very nuanced, sophisticated (laughs) philosophical argument. I'm not necessarily necessarily saying that would be emotionally compelling. Yeah. Right. Especially to people who aren't really thinking on that level. Right. And I'm thinking, you know, you asked me and I'm saying if I were to really like, you know, look at it from a purely philosophical and ethical standpoint, mm -hmm. I would try to dissect it in that way. Now, I still may emotion and be like, okay, this is really stupid. Like, why why do I need to stop living my life, which is, you know, going very like normally smoothly. I have all these comforts. Why give all that up? To go fight for Biden or some bullshit, you know. Daddy Brandon's were here. Yeah. So, so let me let me kind of introduce
0: something else to it. If our country provided universal healthcare and universal ed- public education through the university level, and they called you up to fight, would that be? Would the contract be more balanced out that way? Because if we are in a, in a social contract or a political contract with our government but the government isn't really giving us anything. We're not really invested as citizens, right? But if there was something that we collectively benefited from as citizens of this country, would that be a greater impetus to actually go and do your bit?
1: I mean, those two things that you mentioned, maybe it would make it slightly more palatable, but I don't know if that would really factor into the overall equation or make a big difference. To me personally. Yeah. I I take your point though. Like if, because if the government's asking you to make such a massive sacrifice, then you would hope that their government that actually provides something. Right. Or you know that maybe your children or like your future generations are going to be like well off in that society. Right. Which... I think at this point it's like on top of fucking over like
0: people who like saddle with, with a uh, student loan debt and healthcare debt.
1: It's like, Oh yeah, by the way, you also have to go and fucking die for Taiwan. Go get them. Yeah. But it's uh it's interesting to think about that scenario though with Taiwan and you know, their uh, critical role in semiconductor production and how how something like that where if you had a war about Taiwan how that could be extrapolated into a war about the fate of humanity and if we're going to take a more if we're going to have a democracy (laughs) lead us you know or I say democracy because you know Shit's getting fucked these days, but a democracy versus an authoritarian. Regime. I don't think it's enough to go, to ask normal people to delay lay down. No, I I don't think it is either. And I think but, that's like the. Yeah.
0: A lot of times wars are so, and I think this is like the narrative used in Russia right now is like this is the fate of our country, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. A lot of times war, wars are sold as such, and I'm curious as to how often you are actually like laying down your life for a sh- like a struggle on like a civilizational scale. Maybe world war two was that mm-hmm. I think world war two is that much more for the Soviet union, Britain and France than it was for the United States or like, this is like an existential, like, I mean the Soviets objectively speaking, were were fighting a war that if they lost it, they would have been exterminated. Like it, it was in the book that Hitler wrote
1: like page. So-and-so, um, but but do you not think though there's a difference between finding something emotionally compelling and even something that might be intellectually difficult to justify in the moment, it could actually have an uh, you know an effect down the line that is significant that's unforeseen, right? Sure. Like you can like I'm look. You asked me would I go fight in yeah. such a war like. Probably not, <laughs> right? right? And even if I analyze it to the philosophical extent that we, we talked about, yeah, I'm probably going to come to the conclusion, conclusion that, yeah, this is not really worth it for me to partake in. But is it possible that, I don't know, like down the line, that does make a difference and we just don't know, like, it, you know, a butterfly effect. Of course, that's not to say that, you know, you can use that as a reason to justify going to war, I'm just saying, like, it would matter, (laughs) right? Like, if they did enter a war, it it probably would be significant. Um, And maybe our inability or lack of desire to partake or, you know, justify the war from a rational standpoint doesn't take away its significance. Um, I don't know what really I'm getting at there. But, um, damn, I had another point that I wanted to make, and it just it eludes me now.
0: I think it would um, be an absolute clusterfuck trying to... Even in a justified war to go and protect the sovereignty of a country, it, it would be very, very hard to ask uh, like, uh, an but, American
1: to go yeah. and fight for that. Because, objectively speaking... You think it would be labeled as... You know, trying to protect the sovereignty of Taiwan. Hell yeah. You think I mean it would be labeled that way. Yeah. But if you look at it, it's just like clearly, you know, it's kinda of like we care about oil. Like we care about the semiconductors. Right. Um But then, like I said, you could extrapolate that to like do you want China to be the world leader or do you want the US? And I don't know, as bad as the U.S. is in terms of intervention in, like, every country in the world, basically. Uh, is it possible that China would be worse? Well, the question is, does it matter for the average American?
0: Because, I mean, th- those are all, like, the games of gods almost at that point. Where, like, mm-hmm. geopolitics and, like, you know, strategic interest, and, objectively speaking... Yeah, you know, I think we have benefited a certain extent from the primacy of the United States and the world, right? You know, we have supply chain. well, supply chains are kind of fucked now, too. But, you know, the world economy is essentially built under our influence. And I'm sure our access to technology and information and all of this is driven by the fact that the U.S. is is to a certain extent a global power. I don't know if it's the only global power anymore. I don't think it's like a unipolar order anymore. And I think that's also kind of the the scary thing about that situation where how much of the United States going to war against China, yeah, okay, over Taiwan would be a war that the U.S. feels it needs to fight anyways, right? Because China's kind of eating our lunch on the infrastructure stage. They have a lot of soft power. Um, they're They're building out a lot of infrastructure in Southeast Asia, in Africa. They're kind of winning a lot of friends there. And I think there is a sense of like panic here in the U.S. that, oh my gosh, like, We're losing our footing, so yeah, like we got to go fucking fight this war. But I don't know if that's like if we're talking about because that would be like a fucking massively bloody
1: conflict. So let's talk about the the, the, the antithesis of war. So diplomacy. So uh, what? What could that look like? Right? Like if if you took a less um. Uh, physically aggressive, you know, approach to say what what's going on in Taiwan, like from the U.S. standpoint. You know, I mean, we, we talk about the necessity of war or maybe the lack thereof in certain cases. What is the uh, how how useful or how pro, how powerful is diplomacy? How useful can it really be? And what are, I mean, are you aware of cases where diplomacy has averted war?
0: I mean, I guess we'd, we'd never know. Right. Yeah. It's hard to dissect
1: that. I mean, I I
0: think that there is a lot of bad examples, right. You know, the, the appeasement of Hitler to a certain extent was seen as like a remarkable failure. Um, I I think that maybe less so diplomacy, but collaboration is the approach. And I and there's kind of this unspoken triumphs that we have as a humanity, where despite all of our squabblings and like geopolitical tensions, we still have things like you know, cross global telecommunications that works right. Post the postal system still functions. You could order a package from China today, you will still get it in the United States. You could probably order a package from Russia. Right now, you'd still get it in the United States, and that's all a product of collaboration, cooperation to a certain extent. Where you know some things that we've recognized are just like intrinsic goods, and we have to have them. That we're going to like see past our uh, political and like, international differences to uh, make it happen. I think that's kind of the, the alternative is finding a way to like work past it. Um, I don't want to, you know. I, I think as I've gotten older, I am very much in the mindset of like this is just how things are always going to be. Maybe in the past when I was younger, I was more uh, open to the prospect of, like, yeah, no, world peace is a thing. Like, we just have to find a way to work and live together. But
1: you kind of alluded to one potential solution um, when you're talking about how economically tied, you know, the countries become due to the collaboration, right? Um, I mean, if we become more and more, like, I mean, think about how economically entrenched the U.S. and China are with each other, right? Yeah. I mean, does that... Does that not, in and of itself, kind of almost provide some sort of barrier or preventive force to a war? To a certain extent, yes. What would China look like without the U.S.'s, you know, economic... Well, I mean, actually, a great example of this is the European
0: Union, right? Because the whole reason they designed the European Economic Project is they wanted to find a way to prevent France and Germany from going to war again. Because they fought two massive, bloody continental wars, and now they're economically interdependent. So, like, what are the chances that Germany is going to invade France, right? I mean, I guess there's always a chance, right? But... Nine times out of ten, they just, like, figure it out during, like, soccer matches or whatnot. And that's, like, as tense as it gets. I don't know if there's, like, a So, rivalry.
1: we need more soccer. We, we need we need China's soccer <laughs> national team to, <laughs> to, to improve and to, like, I mean, the
0: U.S. needs to
1: improve, too. Like, so we don't <laughs> lose to, like, Trinidad and Tobago, right?
0: Which, I mean, respect. <laughs> but I, I think economic interdepend- interdependency is probably a good answer to it. But that kind of gets into the question of, like, globalization and, like, who are the winners and losers of that. But yeah, I mean, like if we're all like, you know, we're not going to go to war because China makes all of our uh, microelectronics for our digital products, you know, I mean, what the fuck would a war in China do to iPhones? We just wouldn't have them anymore, right? Because they they manufacture everything for all the
1: components for an iPhone. and they assemble them in like Cupertino. I think I think you just stumbled onto the real answer is that if our iPhones are going to be taken away, we're not going to do it. There's no fucking chance. Yeah. There is no chance. Absolutely not. How else are we gonna as Pornhub?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Consumerism will save humanity. Believe Ma- it or- magazines are back on the market. Yeah. Back on know. the menu. What, maybe, that, maybe that's like
1: as dark and fucked up as consumerism is. Maybe that's like the alternative to just... Well, you know, it's these unintended consequences of things that, yeah, on some level look really messed up. Right? Consumerism is like... You think about how devoid of substance a life of consumerism would be. But then you think about this impact globally of, I mean, we are living in the most peaceful era of yeah. human existence. Yeah. The past
0: hundred years, I right. think it's, no, a hundred years were still kind of fucked up because of world war II. But ever since
1: then... and but, 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 you know, relative to the population, of course... But
0: how it, much of that is consumerism versus just the prevalence of nuclear weapons? And, like, the guarantee that if the U.S. and China went to war, that would be, like, mutually assured destruction?
1: Yeah, definitely nuclear weapons have played a role. Would you say they play a bigger role than the economic... Or, or maybe it was the original incentive or the kind of... I think what the, allowed the globalization to, it kind of steadied things to the point that it allowed the globalization, the economic sure. ties to emerge. And then now yeah. it's more driven by the economics than really like the risk of nuclear warfare, although
0: that still exists. But I mean, if you look in nuclear war, like the risks are very, very real, right? There's almost a guarantee of two nuclear powers go to war with each other. That's the end. But that does also lessen the burden on average people getting called up to arms to go and fight, right? Because the chances of the scenario unfolding where China invites Taiwan and the United States steps in to defend Taiwan's territorial integrity, that would be total war, right? That means nuclear weapons are coming to the fold, which means that neither China or the United States would be inclined to actually
1: fight that kind of war. Yeah, it's a lose-lose. Although Russia did invade Ukraine, right? Which... Which is why they have been rebuked so heavily. Uh, not just by the West, I feel like. I mean, okay, mo- mainly by the West, but like... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's... I don't know. I don't know. You you would have hoped for stronger condemnation from like the likes of China, right? Right. And India. Right. But, But the economics... But then you see the... The force of economics and how right maybe they're okay with uh some tactical nukes being used in ukraine well you know? i mean and that's also i
0: don't know they're like i mean i i think if russia uses nukes in ukraine that would kind of that would there's no moral high ground right now but that would absolutely like unleash i think the wrath of, of the entire planet at that point because nobody wants to see that happen yeah, they would be an absolute pariah. Which I mean they kind of are already now. They already are, but, but I mean they still have China, India and you know. Not completely yet, but at that point they would I think so, yeah. yeah. So what have we learned from today's podcast? We learned that both of us are fucking uh cucked cowards, like we're, we're <laughs> beta beta males. Um we learned that war is fought by the working people for the for the rich man's interests. But we knew that we didn't learn that. We knew that we, we knew felt that. it. We felt it in our bones. Um, I am mean, now I'm like imagining Jeff Bezos just like with a helmet, like in the front lines, just
1: right. Um, um, we learned about tribalism and how, you know, if, if we could minimize that, that could be a way, a path forward to minimizing wars and, and global conf- conflicts. Uh, I mean, we kind of knew that too. Yeah,
0: and then we just kind of, I think, feel for the common person's uh, moral struggle they're facing right now, like what to do. Um,
1: and we ultimately learned that there can be a necessity, to, uh, necessity of war from, you know, a certain party standpoint. For example, self-preservation, right? Um, if that's kind of the aim then all of a sudden war is like a noble thing, mm-hmm. right? Or partaking in, in war is a noble thing from the point of view of the, the nation that's under existential risk. Right. Um. But yeah, I don't know. So uh, hopefully no draft cards in the mail anytime soon. Yeah, I'll just throw. I throw my mail out anyway. It doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter. It's all your bills. Yeah, fuck it. <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back again soon with another episode of Radius of Reason. Take care, everybody. Adios.